Well, let me begin by just saying that I'm thankful to be here, to have been invited to speak from our confession. So chapter 9 on free will. This is a difficult doctrine, and I'm going to begin a little bit as President Renahan began. Do Reformed Christians believe in free will other than Dr. Renahan? Our confession clearly tells us that we do, but many of us probably still have the tendency to overcompensate for the Arminian error and perhaps uh, shrink back even from mentioning free will at times or perhaps overqualifying it when we do. Francis Turretin famously said, we establish, we the reformed established free will more truly than our opponents. So the writings of our men abundantly teach that we by no means repudiate this term, free will, when properly understood. So how is this term, free will, to be properly understood? You, you might, in the course of this, uh, this conference, you might be surprised to discover that that the Reformed tradition ascribes a great deal more freedom to the will than perhaps you thought, or at least that it has more to say than you realized, all the while, of course, rejecting the errors of the Armenians and the Socinians and the like, especially as it touches upon depravity and the matters of salvation. I've been given four lectures, um, one today, this one today and three tomorrow, all of which are uh, aimed to build upon one another, which ought to give you the hint that this first lecture simply seeks to lay a basic foundation of the nature of free will, the nature of free choice. And so <clears throat> our question here is this, what is the essential nature of free choice? as a rational and free creature created in the image of God. Now this is the focus of paragraph one in chapter nine of our confession, if you have that open. Paragraph one addresses the essential nature of free choice irrespective of the various moral states in which man may be found, which is paragraphs two through five. And so we confess in paragraph one that God hath endued the will of man with that natural liberty and power of acting upon choice that is neither forced nor by any necessity of nature determined to do good and evil. And so we see here the doctrine of free choice, or we may say volition, based upon deliberation. Now, before we dive in, Let's commend our time to the Lord with, with prayer. Pray with me. Our Father and our God, as we begin this hour to reason theologically within a, a tradition of biblical reasoning, a tradition of exegetical reasoning, we pray that you would help us to think clearly, that you would help us to understand the things that we hear, to hang them on mental pegs, so to speak, and, and uh, be able to build upon them over the course of, the, of this conference. We pray that you would lay a foundation 
uh, for this doctrine in our, in our mind as we proceed forward. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. So I've titled this lecture, Synchronic Contingency and the Doctrine of Concurrence. We have a lot of ground to cover over the course of these lectures, not so much by exegeting every word or sentence in our confession, but by considering the historical conversations, especially that stand in the background of our confession. Right? Conversations that began or even flourished prior to the time of the Reformation. And so we can't help but mention the influence of medieval men like Thomas Aquinas and John Duns Scotus. Today, it seems like any mention of Catholic or medieval uh, theologians become something like the boogeyman. Uh, on a great number of issues, however, the Reformed tradition did not, of course, reinvent the wheel. And we can profit from those who they themselves profited, even as our own tradition shows appropriating certain doctrines from Thomas does not make one a Thomist, and appropriating certain doctrines from Scotus does not make one a Scotus. In fact, in many instances, it just makes you a better theologian, makes you orthodox and reformed, as we think of how these things are appropriated, standing firm and confidently within that broader Christian tradition. And so, Let's answer this question. Let's try to answer this question with our feet firmly planted within that broader Christian tradition. What is free will? That is, what is freedom of choice? In other words, what needs to be affirmed in order to establish the free actions of God's rational creatures? Our confession expresses that God has bestowed upon the will of man a natural liberty and the power of acting upon choice that consists of two things, spontaneity and contingency. The spontaneity of the will's act and the contingency of its chosen course of action. So let's think about these two things Briefly, by way of an expanded definition, first, the spontaneity of its act, of the act of the will, namely, that it is able to elicit its own acts, spontaneously move itself, and as our confession says, that it be not forced. The idea here is that it is able to exercise its power of choice voluntarily and in a way that is free from coercion. Secondly, the contingency of its act or of its chosen course of action, namely, that it is able to choose between alternatives, that it is able to act contingently, that, or as our confession says, that it be not by any necessity of nature determined to only one effect at any moment of its choosing, or at the moment of its choosing. And so freedom requires the power of, it, 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 freedom requires the power of choosing and or refusing of one's own accord, which itself requires spontaneity and contingency. 
<clears throat> we'll have more to say on this, of course, but the idea, the idea is that the will to be free must be free from certain forms of necessity so as not to destroy the spontaneity of its act and the contingency of its chosen course of action. And if either, this is the idea, that if either of these are impeded, it's spontaneity or contingency, which again, we'll talk more about, but if either of these are impeded, the will no longer acts freely, but out of some sort of necessity, whether by a necessity of coercion which sometimes is called co-action or a necessity of nature. In one way or another, this entire conference really is committed to fleshing out these two things, but, but I especially want to begin this morning or this afternoon, I guess, by considering the nature of free choice as a contingent act. Free from two forms of necessity, in other words, as a real and spontaneous ability in the very moment of choice to will, not to will, or to will otherwise. So in the first place, consider with me the concept that is at the heart of both medieval and reformed understanding of free will, a concept that has been referred to as synchronic contingency, or to put it differently, the si simultaneous potency of the will for opposite effects. So on the one hand, on the one hand, the idea here is, is simple, or we could say perhaps it's, it's simple once it is, it is grasped. But it is complicated. It's complicated by the fact that this issue presupposes a number of other concepts that themselves need to be defined, not to mention its, its full significance, can only be seen in relation to other confessional matters that are themselves very complex, such as the divine decree and providential concurrence, as we'll come to see at the end of this lecture. So in short, in short the concept of synchronic contingency what does it affirm? It affirms the radical freedom of the will in the very moment that it wills whatsoever it wills. In other words, the will retains the potency, and, and when we speak about potency, we're talking about those, those possibilities, those capabilities or po possibilities that lie within the will's natural power or ability. And, and so what we are saying is that the will retains the potency or the power, the ability to will differently than it has, even in the very moment that it is determined to do one thing rather than another. The will may, may only will one thing at a time, very clearly, obviously. But even as the will wills one thing, it does so freely and it does so contingently precisely because it does not will that thing out of necessity. But it wills what it does while simultaneously possessing the power to will otherwise or even not will at all. This is referred to as, again, synchronic 
contingency or the synchronic contingency of the will or the simultaneous potency or power of the will, wherein it establishes the radical contingency of free choice in the moment that the choice is made. The will wills what it will while simultaneously possessing the ability or potency not to will or will otherwise. Difficult, right? But only because it's abstract. Simple, I think, once you get a handle of it and you begin to grasp it. So hang on to this, if you can. Let's take a step back. Let's consider the nature and the significance of contingency itself, this whole concept of contingency. Contingent causes and effects and contingent actions and so on as it relates to free will. Our our confession, as we've already heard, speaking of God's providence in chapter 5 and paragraph 2 states by that same providence, he, God, orders all things to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. So, God determines all things that actually come about within the created order. But within the order of second causality, within that created order, within the order of created causes. He providentially determines that some effects come about or fall out by a sort of necessity while other things come about contingently and other things freely. Now, contingency and necessity stand in opposition to one another, at least insofar as they are understood absolutely speaking. So something is necessary, something is necessary when it cannot be or come about otherwise than it is or has. Something is contingent then when it can be or come about otherwise than it is or has. It is not necessarily so. And so these two things, contingency and necessity, stand in opposition to one another. The distinction, however, between contingent and free or contingently and freely is much more subtle because freely is just a subset of contingency. Freely is the sort of contingency and freedom, uh, the sort of contingency that belongs to the free actions of rational creatures. So it's it's a subset of contingency, a certain sort of rational sort of contingency. In other words, both contingency and freedom stand in contrast to necessity. And so, just plainly put, if something comes about necessarily, it has not come about freely or contingently. There are actually few things that are absolutely necessary. God is a necessary being. Why? Because he cannot not exist and cannot be otherwise than he is. He's a necessary being. He's the only necessary 
being. That four plus four equals eight cannot be otherwise than it is. Four plus four necessarily equals eight. And, and in this absolute sense, taken in, in an absolute way then, every creature, on the other hand, is not necessary. Every creature is ultimately contingent. In other words, we do not have a necessary existence. Our very existence is contingent upon what? It's contingent upon God's will. Revelation 4 and verse 11, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and praise for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. And if he so willed, it is possible that we not exist or exist otherwise. And so our very being, our very existence of all created reality is is ultimately contingent and not necessary. But we can speak in less absolute terms. We can speak relatively as well. God alone is absolutely necessary, and we are ultimately contingent beings. But we can also speak of our existence, our existence relative to his decree, right? Our existing as we do is necessary relative to his degree, decree that we should exist as we do. All right, we call this um, consequent necessity. It's a consequence of his decree, of his will, that we exist as we do. But considered relative to ourselves, our existence is still contingent. It's contingent, again, because there is nothing in us that necessitates our existence or precludes the possibility of things being otherwise. And so, again, all of creation is contingent in the absolute sense. But if we narrow our focus to the different ways that things come about within the created order, so the order of second causes, we may still say that some things fall out necessarily, so according to a certain kind of consequent necessity. It's necessary in consequence of something else, such that under the circumstances, it was not within the power of the thing to do otherwise. And we can say that other things come about contingently and freely, such that under the circumstances, it is within the power of the thing to have done otherwise. So understanding these distinctions, and we'll labor a little bit more to flesh them out, but in understanding these distinctions, we can better understand why certain forms of necessity destroy the contingency and freedom of choice, especially the necessity here, the necessity of coercion and the necessity of nature. So regarding, regarding forms, different forms, the, really these two forms of necessity, coercion and of nature, Peter Martyr Vermigli helpfully points out that even among the otherwise contingent things of creation, a sort of necessity can or may arise either from an external cause 
or from an internal principle that is inherent to the nature of the thing. So for instance, a sort of necessity can be imposed upon a thing from without, an external cause, in consequence of an external cause of coercion or of coaction. Again, our, our confession uh, speaks of this when it says that for the will to be free, it must not be forced. So for example, your big brother takes your hand and makes you slap your own face, right? You could say that you are the one slapping your face, right? It is your hand after all. But you're doing so not freely, you're doing so by the will of another, by the co-action of another. This is the necessity of coercion arising by way of consequence from an external cause. All too frequently, our modern idea of free will is reduced to the absence of coercion. But there's another sort of necessity that must also be eliminated, namely the sort that arises from within, that arises in consequence from a natural principle within, within the nature of the thing itself that unless impeded, determines it to act a certain way, given its nature, such that it cannot, of its own accord, do otherwise. This is the necessity of nature arising from an internal principle belonging to the nature of the thing itself. Um, and here, <clears throat> we're going to say more about this all along the way um, and, and really bring it to a head in our last, last and final lecture, but here we're thinking particularly its metaphysical nature and not, not so specifically and narrowly its moral nature. So, for instance, um, animals, like humans, in some manner move themselves, right? They move themselves, but they do so by way of a natural instinct rather than by choice. Or a little boy might underestimate the necessity of nature when he's having too much fun and doesn't want to stop and go potty and then nature calls, right? And he's no longer got a choice. Ramili gives two other examples that are helpful on account of the, the additional inference that he draws from them. He notes that it is the nature of fire to heat, right? And it's the nature of the sun to run its course and so forth. No less than the brute beast, but perhaps in a less complex way, these things do what they do by nature, by a necessity of, of what they are, a necessity of nature not by the contingency of, of free choice, right? They cannot do otherwise. Fire heats, it cannot choose to cool, and the sun cannot choose to, for instance, stop in its course. In fact, doing so would be to act contrary to their nature. But then to show the radical contingency of even these things, Vermigli says, he points out that, that God if he so wills, can cool the fire, as in the case of Daniel's three friends. He can stop the sun in its course, as in the days of Joshua. See, even these things are 
even these things are, are necessary by nature, but only in a contingent sense. Because all creation ultimately is contingent. But Vermeule's larger point, the inferences that he is drawing from this, is that free choice must be free from the necessity of coercion, that external cause, but also of the necessity of nature, that internal principle of, of nature that determines it to, to one effect. And so it cannot, our understanding of free choice and and free will ultimately cannot be minimized or reduced simply to the acting according to one's nature, simply without coercion. But must also flow, our understanding of it must also flow from an internal and spontaneous principle in the will that is not at any given moment is not determined by nature to only one sort of effect but as potency for contrary effects, to will, not will, or will otherwise. Zanke agrees here, he says, we therefore refer to causes as necessary when they are not able, according to their nature, to be otherwise or to act otherwise than they are. And we refer to causes as contingent or free when they are able, according to their own nature, to be otherwise and to act otherwise than they are. <clears throat> to this we may add another distinction as we come closer really to the point that we're trying to make. There are two different ways of highlighting the kind of contingency that is wrapped up in the power of free choice. The one has been referred to as diachronic contingency. Diachronic contingency. And the other is what we're primarily interested in here, and that is synchronic contingency. Now, when we talk about chronic, diachronic, synchronic, when we say chronic, think here in terms of chronology or think in terms of with reference to time. So in this context, diachronic refers to, to actions that take place through the course of, of time. So for instance, if Socrates is at this moment sitting, it is possible that he should be at another moment freely, that he should freely choose to stop sitting and begin standing or something else. Of course, as long as he is actually sitting, it is, of course, necessary that he be sitting while he's sitting, right? It's a necessity of consequence. But nevertheless, unlike the, the inanimate object, for instance, the heavy object, the rock, that by nature falls unless it is stopped, unless it is impeded. It just does what it does by nature because it is a heavy object, and heavy objects by nature fall unless they're impeded. Socrates, however, as a free agent is sitting, his sitting is contingent upon him freely choosing to continue to sit and or at any subsequent moment of time actually uh, actualizing a potency, a power, an ability to choose otherwise. So for instance, you are here listening to me now, but it lies within your power and ability to consider more important things that you could be doing. And so freely choose to leave, right? Your 
being here 10 minutes from now is entirely contingent upon you freely choosing to stay. So that's diachronic, through time. Synchronic contingency, however, it, it, it's not in contrast to this, but it does add something to it. It adds to this picture and highlights an even more radical contingency of our actions. If diachronic considers the contingency of our actions through time, synchronic contingency considers the contingency of our actions that exist within time. In other words, in the very moment a choice is made. And so, at the moment that Socrates chooses to sit, he simultaneously possesses the potency, the power, the ability to sit, not sit, or do otherwise. See, genuine freedom means that in the moment of choice, there are other possible outcomes than the one that is freely chosen. While Socrates sit, it is possible that he stand. Not actually at one and the same time, of course, but the point here is that there is, a, there is resident within his will a simultaneous potency for sitting, not sitting, or another alternative. And so we're talking, it, it brings us to that radical contingency that highlights the, the, the potency, the, the, the power of that faculty of the will in that moment of, of choice to, to do otherwise than what it does. <clears throat> in short, the concept of synchronic contingency affirms the radical freedom, then, of the will in the very moment that it wills whatsoever it wills. In other words, the will retains the potency, the power, the ability, a, a possibility that lies within the will's natural power or ability to will differently than it has, even in the very moment that it is determined to do one thing and not another. And so, Given the alternative possibilities within the will's grasp at a moment of choice, we can go so far as to say, you are here at this very moment, and it is simultaneously possible that you not be here. Which means, in the most radical way, that unless you were dragged in here against your will, the necessity of, of coercion, or you came in here sleepwalking, uh, necessity of of nature, you are here by your own free choice. You are actually here at this very moment, but it could potentially be otherwise, which demonstrates the radical contingency and freedom of your choice to be here. This is what is meant by synchronic contingency. The freedom of the will consists in the will willing what it wills while simultaneously possessing the ability or potency not to will or will otherwise. This is also referred to as the will's simultaneity of potency or simultaneity of, of power. Um, it simultaneously possesses the ability, the power to do more than one effect. It simply, it simply means 
that more than one possi possibility simultaneously resides within the will's resident or natural power of alternativity. To choose freely and contingently to will, not will, or will otherwise at any given moment. Zacharias Ursinus writes, the will is in its own nature capacitated. In other words, the will is in its own nature capable to will the opposite of that which it does will or to defer acting and so inclines of its own accord to that course which it prefers. This idea of synchronic contingency or the will's simultaneity of power for opposites, as it's sometimes put. This idea of synchronic contingency underwent genuine development in the medieval era, and then it was appropriated, sometimes more or less clearly or fully uh, um, uh, uh, elaborated upon, but it was appropriated within our reformed tradition. And there has been a lot of ink in the scholarly writings and the books and the academic literature and so forth, a lot of ink spilled over whether the Reformed followed Thomas Aquinas in this matter or whether or not they followed John Duns Scotus in this, making various assumptions about how Thomas and Scotus differ. But from my own reading of this in the primary sources, my own reading of this, I would agree with the overall um, thesis and analysis of, of Richard Moeller in this respect that substantially the same teaching historically is to be found in Thomas and in Scotus. Though indeed, and in the entire Catholic tradition, though indeed it does undergo genuine development along the way. In other words, and this is really what I'm getting at here, this is not a matter of Thomism, and it's not a matter of Scotism, nor is this historically a matter of uh, this issue that we're talking about, nor is it a difference that highlights the differences of Calvinism or Arminianism. We will get to some of that later. It's simply a matter of Catholicity. But differences do arise, whether between Thomas or Scotus or Calvinists and Arminians, the differences arise when we begin to relate this basic understanding of freedom to other doctrines. So for Thomas and Scotus, differences especially arise over the precise relationship of the powers of the intellect and the will. That'll be my next two lectures dealing with that. For the Reformed and the Arminians, for instance, differences especially arise over the effects of sin. That's more my last, our last lecture, and even perhaps more profoundly over the relation of human freedom to the divine decree. And it is especially this last issue, the relation of human freedom, the contingency and freedom of human, of, of uh, man's act and acts, uh, choice, free choice, and the divine decree. This is especially the issue that I want to take up now briefly and um, direct our attention uh, to this in the remainder of the time that we have left.
So here's the question. How is the contingency of things that we've been talking about here, that things could be otherwise than they are, how is the contingency of things to be maintained and to be understood in relation to the certain and infallible divine decree, the decree, God's decree, that seems to place a kind of, of, of necessity upon, upon the things that are and the way that they are, the way that he has decreed and determined that they shall be? So this brings us then to um, the doctrine of concurrence. The doctrine of concurrence. Thinking here in terms of of, uh, the decree and the outworking of the decree in providence. And we face two difficulties here as we transition to think about this this vertical dimension of, of the relationship between Um, human freedom and ultimately divine freedom, human will and the divine will. We have two difficulties here. First, we've already been tasked with opening up a difficult doctrine of free will and yet we cannot adequately do this without relating it to other equally or more difficult doctrines such as the divine decree and its providential execution in time. Um, Again, this is an example of how Dr. Renahan tells us that we need to uh, read our confession sideways or read it horizontally, or you could say diachronically, wherein the doctrines of earlier chapters are presupposed in later chapters, and that's what we find here. Um, All of these doctrines are presupposed as we come to chapter nine on free will. And so I would, as you did earlier, I would refer uh, you to the lectures that were given on chapters three and five of the d- divine uh, the, of the decree and of providence, respectively, because really all that we can do here is scratch the surface. Okay. Secondly, a second difficulty is the modern assumption. The modern assumption that plagues us as we approach this question. We are too often set on the horns of a dilemma either this or this, and these are our only choices. So we're set on the horns of, horns of a, d- a dilemma. And, and, and notwithstanding minor variations of this dilemma, of this ultimatum, here it goes. Either, either man's freedom consists of this simultaneous potency for opposites, this, this radical contingency and, and freedom of choice, or, uh, oh, and, and, so you got that, human freedom, Uh, You retain that, and yet something needs to give in relation to God's freedom and God's decree. Either it's it's said that it's fallible or that his knowledge and decree and so forth is grounded no longer in himself, but is grounded in, in the creature, in the knowledge of the creature. Or else, the other horn of the dilemma, or else God's decree is upheld and It is said that it enforces, it imposes a necessity upon creatures, and therefore man's freedom needs to give somewhere. And it's reduced to to simply a lack of coercion. The first is libertarianism. 
taken up in Armenianism, Socinianism, um, what other isms. Uh, the second is a kind of determinism or necessitarianism. And in my opinion, both share the same assumption, perhaps the one more than the other, but they share the same assumption. That true alternativity or the simultaneous potency or power ability of the will, and on the one hand, and absolute divine sovereignty on the other hand, are irreconcilable as such. This is the assumption as I understand it. So that either the freedom of the will needs to be explained otherwise, or the freedom of God needs to be explained otherwise. And again, the latter assumption, the freedom of God needs to be explained otherwise, is made by the Armenians and the like, the former. Well, the former, the freedom of man needs to be explained otherwise, can sometimes be discerned in what I think falsely flies under the banner of Calvinism. Neither Thomas nor Scotus nor the Reformed, as I see it, as I understand it, accepted this dilemma. These are, see, neither or, and this is all that you have. Choose one. And so I think that we should resist the temptation to do so ourselves. But this doesn't mean that they all worked out this relationship identically, how to work it out, as Thomas and Scotus themselves grounded their ideas in differing views of eternity, and the Reformed were eclectic in their sources, though we could say that they tended to show greater sympathy with Thomas. That being said, okay, once again, the question before us is this. Considering the infallibility and the certainty of the divine decree, does the will of man truly have a potency to will otherwise than it does? The answer is yes. The question is how. How do we simultaneously maintain the radical contingency of human freedom, the potency to will, not will, or will otherwise, and the absolute sovereignty of the divine decree, who infallibly decrees whatsoever comes to pass? You get the question, right? Okay, I'm done. No, I'm I don't know, you might feel that way when I get done. <laughs> well, consider the following. First, God's freedom and man's freedom are not univocal. God's freedom and man's freedom are not univocal. Neither men nor angels are free in the way that God is free. You were reading the confession, uh, chapter 2, obviously, and he is most free. He, his is an absolute freedom. Ours is a dependent freedom. That is dependent, well, upon his freedom, dependent upon the freedom of the divine will. In him, we live, move, and have our being. Whereas his will is not governed by another. It is not dependent upon another. It is not moved by another but is of himself, through himself, and for himself. In this way, your sinus says, free power of choice, which is ascribed to man in our confession, in our tradition, but he says, free power of choice belongs more properly to God 
who is perfectly and absolutely at his own control, not being bound to anyone. One of the principal errors of the Arminian viewpoint is the assumption that freedom is not a freedom, human freedom is not a freedom if it is in any way dependent freedom. And therefore, man's freedom must also be independent and autonomous freedom. Well, that's, that's God's freedom. <clears throat> it makes it somewhat blasphemous. Because there is only room for one independent and sovereign, God's will, in the Armenian view, God's will and man's will end up competing for space, and the Arminian gives that space to man's will at the expense of God's will. Whereas I would say that the determinist, um, at least various forms of determinism follow the, following the same premise, give that space to God's will at the expense of man's will. And the point I'm making here is that both God and man are free, but God is free as only God can be free who lives, moves, and has his being from himself, through himself, and for himself. And the creature is free only as the creature can be free, who lives, moves, and has his being from God, through God, and for God. His existence, God's existence and freedom is absolute and independent. Ours is relative and dependent. When God wills, he wills wholly and entirely of his own good pleasure. Right, Daniel 4 and verse 35, he does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? In contrast, men and angels live, move, and have their being in him to will and to do according to his good pleasure, to do whatever his hand and his purpose determined beforehand to do that should be done, right? Acts 4 and verse 28. Now, it may not yet be clear in what we've said how, but man's freedom depends upon and is established by the absolute freedom of God. And the foundational principle to be seen here is that God's will and man's will are not univocal. God's will and man's will, will do not operate within the same order of causality as if competing for space. True, true, God's will and man's will are both simultaneously the cause of whatsoever freely comes to pass. But God's will operates in the order of first causes. Man's will operates in the order of second causes. Two different orders of causality working simultaneously and concurrently the one dependent upon the other, so that God, as first cause, moves man, as second cause, to move himself most freely by his own proper determination. Okay, secondly, trying to build on this then. Secondly, we, see that we, we need to observe that neither the certainty and infallibility of God's decree, 
nor the providential execution of his decree destroys the liberty and contingency of second causes, but rather establishes it. Of course, these are the words of our confession, right? Of God's decree, paragraph one. God hath decreed in, in himself freely and unchangeably all things whatsoever come to pass. Yet, so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. The assumption, however, of the libertarian and the determinist alike is that if God's will is certain and immutable, then whatsoever comes to pass must come to pass necessarily. Okay, we're using that carefully in how we've worked out necessity and contingency, leaving, leaving then no more than a simply merely logical or hypothetical contingency alternatives that could never have been actually exercised. But our confession, our confession makes no assumption, such assumption, and actually goes so far as to say that the certainty and immutability of the first cause establishes the liberty and contingency of second causes. So how do we explain this I don't even know what time it is, but how do we, I assume I have a soundbite left. How do we explain it in the soundbite that we have left? We can say this much. <clears throat> and we can say this much. There would be truth to this assumption of the libertarian determinists. There would be truth to this assumption if God's decree were itself a necessary cause that could not be otherwise because necessary causes beget necessary effects, just as contingent causes beget contingent effects. But this is where, this is where Scotus's particular emphasis is useful, wherein he stressed the radical contingency and freedom of the divine will as it respects his decree to create and order all things and so forth. The, the Lord did not create out of any, any external or internal necessity. But he did so most freely, most contingently. He freely willed to create and freely willed to order this actual world, but it lies within his power to just as easily not create or to create another possible world order. In other words, he creates not necessarily, but most contingently and freely, which then establishes the, rad the radical contingency of the entire created order. In other words, the order of second causes or secondary causality is most fundamentally an order of contingency contingent upon the will of God. This is, we, we said this earlier. But Thomas emphasizes, as he emphasizes, the question of creaturely freedom and contingency is most especially resolved from within that order of secondary causality itself, within 
the created order or order of created causes itself. Because even though the entire created order is contingent, not all things come to pass contingently. We mustn't make the mistake of confusing here and conflating certainty and infallibility with necessity. Whatsoever the Lord most freely decrees will certainly and infallibly and immutably come to pass. We confess this. Amen? And each thing that he has decreed to come to pass will actually come to pass within the order of second causes in exactly the way that he has decreed it to come to pass. Yes? Okay. He certainly and infallibly and immutably decrees, according to the order of first causes, he certainly and immutably uh, and infallibly decrees that some things come to pass through necessary second causes, so by a necessity of nature, for instance, but other things through second causes that are themselves contingent and free by means of the deliberative or deliberate actions of men and angels, actions that could genuinely be otherwise from within and from the perspective of those second causes themselves. Turton is representative in how he brings the emphasis of Scotus and of Thomas together. He says a thing may be contingent in two ways. Either here's the emphasis of Scotus, either with respect to the first cause, inasmuch as creatures can be produced or not produced by God, and so all creatures are contingent with respect to God, because he might not have created any if he had so willed, or two, secondly, or, and here you see the emphasis of Thomas, or with respect to second causes, which can produce or not produce their effects and are thus distinguished from necessary causes. Okay, by way of conclusion, we said that the power of free choice and of free will consists of the spontaneity of its act and the contingency of its choice, free from the necessity of coercion and from the necessity of nature. When we considered in relation to the divine decree as its first cause, things cannot be otherwise than the Lord has decreed them to be, whether he's decreed them to be he's decreed them efficiently or permissively. But inasmuch as he has decreed all things to fall out according to the nature of second causes, and some things through the free actions of men, his decree actually establishes rather than undermines our freedom. Whatsoever God has decreed should come to pass freely, comes to pass by means of our own proper determination and our own self-deliberation, so that in that moment, our will wills what it does and what God has decreed that it will do, but in such a way that with respect to its own causal agency, it really and truly possesses the potency to will otherwise or not will at all. And so it wills what it does freely and not out of necessity. And this is the doctrine of providential concurrence. Two wills concurring in the willing of one and same effect. 
God moves in such a way that we freely move ourselves of our own volition for our own ends in order that his purposes and his ends be infallibly accomplished through us. In relation to God's will, our chosen course of action is certain. But in relation to our will, secondary causes, the same course of action is most freely and contingently chosen, not only because we are not coerced, but also because in that moment, there is simultaneously present in the human will a resident power or potency or ability to opposite effects. That is, a simultaneous potency to alternatives that insofar as it concerns the will of man could have been chosen otherwise, not only in another possible world, but in the one that actually exists. Uh, Rich is telling me I'm done. I'm done. Thank you.